Hello, and welcome to episode 177 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have, we have an interview with Rich Davis, writer of Cult of Dracula in the 2021 previews and coming soon from SourcePoint Press and in shops March 31st, 2021. Uh, Rich, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Can you uh, start us off with a quick bio about yourself and then an elevator pitch for this uh, this book? Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's actually a, a, a privilege to be here and um, always, always love talking to people about the book. Um, my bio, really not all that impressive. I was um, born in a small town in um, uh, Middle Tennessee called Sparta. Uh, Sparta had a lot of um, influences on my uh, my writing style. You'll Anyone who's ever lived in Appalachia or been exposed to that culture, uh, you're going to recognize a lot of things um, as you uh, read through Cult of Dracula. Um, my professional background is uh, primarily in uh, screenwriting and playwriting. Um, I worked in that industry for many, many years, and Cult of Dracula is now my first um, first foray into the world of writing comics. So I'm very, very excited about that. Very nice. Well, it, it seems to be a common theme that there's a lot of folks that have either started in screenwriting and then made the transition to comics or maybe um, went to screenwriting and sort of had like a childhood love of comics and then yeah. after a while sort of, uh, you know, dabbled in the two. Uh, were you a childhood uh, comics reader? You know, I was. My uh, my parents actually tricked me into learning to love to read comics uh, when I was about nine, ten years old. Um, I was convinced I was going to be a professional baseball player, and all I wanted to do was play baseball or play video games. And so my parents, being the very clever people that they are, uh, they tricked me and they started um, giving me comic books whenever I did well in school or whenever I um, did well in a baseball game, they would buy me comic books. And, um, you know, a little 10 year old me didn't realize that uh, reading comic books was reading. <laughs> and I just really enjoyed the comics. And uh, so I, from there, developed a love of reading. And, uh, you know, that kind of grew into reading novels. And, you know, now today I'm a voracious reader. I read all the time, uh, but I probably wouldn't um, be the reader that I am today or the person I am today had my parents not tricked me when I was a little 10 year old kid and um, gave me gave me my start in comic books. And um, since then, I have always had a love of comics. I love the visual medium. I love how. Uh, the words and the pictures go together to create these scenes. It's, um, you know, it, it's like creating a movie in your imagination every time you read a comic book. And I've always, always held on to that childhood magic from reading comics, even as my tastes in comics have matured and changed as I've gotten older. You know, I don't read a lot of superhero books anymore. Um, I primarily read more of the, uh, you know, genre books, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, um, things like that. But, um, you know, I still have that, that wonderful childhood experience, those memories of putting those words and those um, images together, reading those early X-Men and, well, they were early for me, obviously. They weren't really the early books because, you know, this was in the uh, 90s and 2000s when I started reading. But, um, you know, just I've always just had that uh, that special place for comics in my heart. And it's fantastically amazing to be writing comics right now. 
Cool. Well, you answered one of the questions I was going to have for you. I was going to ask you if you remember some of those first comics that uh, that your parents handed you to to trick you oh. into to reading. Absolutely. It was early, um, you know, uh, early 2000s, late 90s, that that period, um, you know, I was reading, um, um, I was reading X-Men, I was reading Amazing Spider-Man, um, I loved Superman and Captain America. Um, I was a I was a Marvel kid. Um, you know, I didn't, um, didn't really care for DC that much. And I still don't have that attachment to DC comics the way that I do for Marvel, mm-hmm. even though I enjoy them. Um, you know, especially as I've gotten older, I've come to really appreciate um, a lot of the Batman stories. Uh, and a lot of the Superman stories. I think Superman is a extremely underrated and misunderstood character today. Um, but yeah, I, I really, really strongly grew up as a Marvel kid, mostly X-Men and Spider-Man um, and those characters. Okay, so growing up and getting comics in that time frame, did you follow any of those guys over to sort of the image books? Because I'm imagining Jim Lee, X-Men, oh Tom McFarlane, yes. Spider-Man might have made an easy transition for you to follow some of those guys over to, to Absolutely. Image. I loved Spawn. Um, you know, I read, I read, I could not get enough Spawn. Um, I still, still love the character, even though, you know, the book's kind of up and down sometimes, um, you know, but it's still just an incredible, um, it was, it was incredibly innovative and dangerous what those guys did. And I just, I loved that. I loved the risks that they took and just the unique new ways they, they, they took on comics. And, you know, of course, McFarlane's art is, I mean, if he's not on Mount Rushmore uh, of, of greatest comic book artists of all time, he's like on the little hill right next to it, um, you know, because he just, he completely defined Spider-Man for my generation, the same way Jim Lee defined the X-Men um, for my generation. And, you know, nobody makes a Spidey move the way Todd did. Um, I mean, it, it's just, that's the way a Spider-Man should move. It's fluid. It's liquid. It's beautiful. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed um, Spawn. Some of the other image books I didn't really get into um, because they were kind of uh, superhero comics on steroids. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I love image comics. I love that image has gone more the genre path, Um, you know, focusing more on the horror, the science fiction and the fantasy um, and kind of leaving the superhero stuff to um, Marvel and DC. Other than Invincible, Invincible is probably one of the greatest um, superhero stories ever written. I adore that story. Um, but other than that, um, you know, I, I really don't don't do too much of the indie superhero stuff. Very nice. So uh, I have a couple of questions about the the screenwriting aspect of, of mm-hmm. your journey. Um, so you said you've, you've, you've done some work there. Um, so did you, uh, did you go to school for any sort of like, uh, creative writing, uh, filmmaking sort of studies? Mm -hmm. I did. I went to uh, the university of North Carolina at Wilmington, uh, good old UNCW Seahawks, um, spent a lot of time on the beach, um, and a little bit of time in the classroom. (laughs) 
um, but yeah, I have a, a focused, um, I have a degree in theater and film and also a degree in business. Um, so I, I kind of dabbled a lot while I was in, uh, in college. Um, couldn't really decide which direction I wanted to go, but um, I eventually had enough credits to finish those three degrees. And um, so uh, in, the, in the film studies department, my emphasis was mostly on screenwriting, creative writing. Um, and in um, theater, I kind of split the line between performance and uh, playwriting. Nice. So you had mentioned that you also sort of had uh, you, one of your degrees was was in business. Do you think that that's uh, beneficial to you? Because I've, I've heard a lot of times, you know, folks that have say you may have, have gone to SCAD or, or something like that, like mm -hmm. they, they learn like the sort of the the skills to be an everyday artist, but they don't have like that second hat to put on to like, you know, um, I mean, I'm sure they get prepared after a while, like once they're, you know, they're going, but a, a lot of the stuff they sort of have to like learn through trial and error. So do you think sort of having like a, a creative focus in your education and then teaming that with the, with the education focus, do you think that was beneficial to you? Absolutely. And if I, you know, if I could offer advice to anyone who wants to be a comics creator, either as an artist or as a writer, um, or if you want to be a screenwriter or an actor, um, you know, whatever, any, anyone who wants to get into the creative field, I would highly, highly recommend uh, buttressing your education with um, at least a minor in business, uh, because you're you are entering a business. I mean, writing comics is a business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the last three, four months, I have spent more of my time marketing and selling my book than I have writing my next book. And if you don't have an understanding of how the world of business works, um, people are going to take advantage of you or they're not going to take you seriously and you're going to get bowled over and you're going to make some very poor decisions that are going to hurt you in the long run. So um, even though it seems like those two things are in competition, business and creativity, they're really not. They go hand in hand. And, um, you know, you've really got to work hard on building your brand. And, um, you know, that's really and truly, uh, you know, that's one of the um, one of the things I'm, uh, you know, kind of most proud of by what I've been able to do with Cult of Dracula you know, um, because, you know, I'm a nobody, nobody's ever heard of Rich Davis before, um, you know, they tune into a podcast like this, or, you know, maybe they've, they've picked up a book, you know, somewhere, um, you know, previews magazine, but, you know, I, I came out of nowhere and I had to kind of build myself. I had to build a brand. I had to build a business. I had to market myself to publishers. I had to market myself to readers and retailers. And, um, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of work, but that work is, a little bit easier if you have an understanding of the way business works and the way the retailers are thinking about their orders. So uh, I would absolutely highly recommend that people um, going into the creative field um, also have a background in business or economics or at least some training um, on that side of things as well. Yeah, I, I I would agree with you there. Um, so when you when you're handling both of these things, the the creative aspect and the the business aspect of, of you know being an indie comics creator, the the hustle that you need to have, do you sort of dedicate like 
Um, you know, half of my day is, uh, you know, the business side and then the, the other half of the day is, is working on projects or do you just sort of uh, maybe have like a, a series of like, okay, now I'm in create mode and now I'm in, in promotion mode. How, how do you handle that? No, I absolutely treat it like a job. Um, you know, I have office hours. Um, I have, a, have an office in uh, the basement of my house. And, uh, you know, I am here at 9 a.m. every morning and I'm here until at least 6 p.m. Uh, in the evening every single day. And I treat it like I'm going to a job and, um, you know, I have a, you know, I have a workflow schedule. I have tasks that I have to accomplish, um, you know, and I do. I split the day up. Um, you know, partially, um, you know, just responding to emails and staying on top of social media, responding to, uh, you know, interview requests and, you know, interested fans and retailers. Um, so there's that whole business side of thing, um, answering an endless number of questions uh, from the publisher, um, you know, because they've always, they've always, they always want to know something, um, you know, they're awesome to work with, but there's just so much information that they need um, mm -hmm. to market the book. Um, you know, so I do, I spend a lot of my time doing that. And then I have, you know, a block of hours that I spend calling retailers, um, and talking to them directly and kind of building that relationship with them to tell them who I am and what my book's about. And, you know, to kind of give them the information they need to, um, decide whether or not they want to order Cult of Dracula. And, um, so, and then, you know, I, I also, I block some hours off to where, you know, even if I don't have that creative spark, even if I don't have an idea that day, even if I don't know what I'm going to write, I'm at least sitting in front of my computer and I've got my, um, my software open and I'm ready to, you know, I'm at least attempting to write, even if I just type the same sentence over and over and over again and delete it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm still keeping that discipline and keeping uh, those habits of being in the office. Um, you know, I think if I didn't do that, I would probably fall way behind, um, you know, because I can be easily distracted, uh, you know, and it's very easy to, you know, sit on the, you know, sit on the couch and binge watch Mandalorian or, you know, something along those lines. Um, and, um, but yeah, I have to keep that discipline and I have to, I have to treat it like a job. Yeah, I, I can respect that. Uh, two big influences on me have been the uh, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield and uh, Stephen King's On Writing, where he oh, talks yes. about like as far as like with the Stephen King, where he 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 writes every day, um, you know, no matter what, you know, birthdays, Christmas, and, and stuff like that. And then the Stephen Pressfield sort of thing is is that uh, you know you can't wait for the muse. You gotta you got to be there, you know, nine o'clock in front of the computer. Um, and, and, and then maybe the muse shows up. You can't sort of, you know, hope that, uh, you know, it's all going to line up for you. So those, those are two big influences on me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, those, those two, th I've read the Stephen King's um, on writing. It's a brilliant book. Um, uh, I haven't read the, the Prescott book, but I'll definitely check that out. Um, and, but the advice is spot on, um, you know, you have, um, you've got to put the work in, you've got to have the discipline and the discipline helps, or at least it does me, it helps find the creativity mm -hmm. and, um, you know, uh, without the discipline, you know, everything would overwhelm me and I would just get completely behind and never accomplish anything. 
Yeah. So when you're sort of at that moment where, um, you know, you're, you sit, you've sat down and you're, you're, you're typing and you might even just be typing the same sentence over and over just to sort of try to get started. Um, do you, do you struggle with the, the internal editor? Are you able to sort of turn that off? Cause again, uh, another influence is uh, like, there's like, I think I, try to paraphrase this Neil Gaiman quote that like you can't have a, a good second draft without like a crappy first draft. So are, <laughs> are, are you able to sort of, cause it's, you know, it's a lot of times uh, for me personally, I'll sit down um, and it'll take a little while to get started. And it's just, you know, me you know, it's going through my head going, Oh no, that, that thing that I'm thinking is not dumb or this actually could work. So it's a little bit of sort of mental gymnastics to finally just sort of not think that all of my ideas suck or all of my ideas are dumb. So, so, so how do you handle that internal editor? Yeah. You know, I kind of split the difference on that, I think, um, because I will, uh, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll have a, a basic idea and I'll just start, I'll start writing it out kind of stream of consciousness um, as it's coming to my head. And then I'll start to kind of look at it and edit it um, as it not be like, no, no, that doesn't work. So I'll go back and I'll fix that bit and then I'll move on. But I, I try to keep a progression going forward, but I'm also editing and revising as I go. Mm-hmm. Um, I am um, for better or for worse. I am um, an extreme perfectionist and I can obsess over the smallest details on things. Um, and, you know, it's things that the, that the comic book reader are, they're never going to see the way I, you know, phrased a particular description, you know, of panel four on page 24 of a book. Um, you know, they're never actually going to get to see that because it's not dialogue. And so the, and the only thing the reader gets to see from me really is the dialogue. But I still obsess over specific phrasing and specific turns of phrase and the way things um, are described with a certain rhythm, you know, because I want my artist to be able to not only uh, read what I'm writing, but also kind of feel the same vibe um, that I'm feeling when I'm writing it. And for me in my brain, for some reason, um, that specific phrasing really matters to uh, the, the way I communicate with, um, with my artist. So, um, so yeah, I think, um, you've got to, for me, at least you've got to do a little bit of both. You've got to let the creative, uh, process flow, but you've also got to make sure that it flows in a coherent direction. Um, you know, if, if that makes any sense whatsoever. No, it does. Um, so uh, I, w- I, ha- I was going to ask you a couple of questions about screenwriting before we went deeper into uh, sure. Cult of Dracula. Um, so you said that you were, you were born in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, you went to school in North Carolina. Are you mm-hmm. still sort of in that area of the country? Yeah, you know, I spent 15 years in, um, in North Carolina, um, absolutely loved the city of Wilmington. Uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful city. If you've never been able to visit it, uh, that area of southeastern North Carolina is just gorgeous. Um, if you're anyone listening as a Nicholas Sparks fan, um, you know, he was he grew up in that area and was heavily inspired by it. Um, so um, came back to Tennessee uh, about uh, about five years ago 
moved to Knoxville. So I traded the beach for the mountains and, um, you know, I've, I've, I've enjoyed the change of scenery, but I still miss that salt in the air. Okay. So you, you never sort of had to like go to New York or go to LA for, for the screenwriting. I, I know that the internet uh, allows us to sort of be wherever we might need to be. And, and mm-hmm. cause you know, if you think about those guys who wanted to get into to comics, uh, you know, sort of like in that, uh, that silver age, they all had to sort of move to Manhattan and sort of walk into the offices and try to try to get attention. But now with, with the internet, we can sort of do it every, mm-hmm. anywhere. So, so was that the case for you? Yeah, that's, you know, that, that world doesn't exist anymore. Uh, you know, you, if you walked into uh, the offices of uh, DC comics or, or Marvel comics somewhere, you'd probably be escorted out by security. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, so people don't, uh, at least in my experience, um, you know, the path to doing this isn't, um, isn't through the mail room anymore. Um, honestly, the world that we live in now, uh, the way I've experienced it, um, it's all about what can you do for yourself? Um, you know, I've never had the mindset that I was going to wait for someone to open the door for me. I've always kicked the door down myself. Um, you know, when I graduated from college, um, I, um, I didn't want to move to New York. I didn't want to move to LA, uh, because the, um, the financial risks, um, were too great and the potential rewards were too difficult to obtain. So I decided to, um, instead go into business for myself. Um, I started a theater company and we began producing, um, plays, um, in bars, actually. Um, we performed at a tiny little bar um, called The Whiskey. We produced uh, Shakespeare inside of that teeny tiny little bar on a 10-foot stage. And um, from there, you know, scraped our nickels and dimes together and moved into a larger space. And eventually, we bought our own theater, actually owned our own building. Um, we operated for almost 10 years um, and produced a lot of plays. And uh, we gave a lot of uh, playwrights the opportunity uh, to produce their works for the very first time. That was our mission. And of course, I got to produce a lot of mine. Um, you know, so I was able to keep myself employed and um, satisfy my creative energies that way. And then also Wilmington has a very vibrant uh, film community. So I got to work in that industry while I was there as well. And then of course, with the internet, you know, you can create and send a script anywhere in the world in a matter of seconds. So, you know, there's no, at least in my mind, there's no need to take the risk of going to Los Angeles or New York and go broke. You can do what you want to do from anywhere in the world. So when you sent those, those scripts uh, out, uh, did you sort of do internet searches and try to find places where you thought um, what you were writing would fit or find somebody who had made something that was very similar to, to what, you were, what you were trying to write? How did you go about to reaching out to folks? All of the above. Um, you've got to find people where they are. Um, you know, you uh, do. Uh, there are uh, there are channels um, where you know jobs in the industry are posted. Um, you know, so you can go through those official channels. There are also you know thousands of independent um, filmmakers out there that are looking for people to edit or doctor their scripts. 
Um, you know, you find them through a variety of, uh, you know, uh, you know, social media communities, Reddit, actually, um, you know, I, I've, I've worked with people that I've met through Reddit. Um, you know, there, there's just, there are so many different ways to connect with people now. Um, you know, you've just got to be willing to put the work in and, um, and find them. So you said that you were you were able to be part of the sort of the indie comic. I'm sorry, indie film scene in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. Um, were you just uh, you know starting out? Were you taking like jobs as sort of uh, you know I'm just you know an assistant to somebody to see how like the the filmmaking was was getting done, and then each Absolutely. time you sort of you could put the pieces together. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And did you, I've like... done everything from PA work to, um, you know, background talent and, uh, television shows that, you know, you just, you, I'm a firm believer. If you want to learn how to do something, do it and watch somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, you know, you can learn so much through just experience. And even if you're just, uh, you know, even if you're just getting coffee for the, uh, you know, for the first AD, you can still learn a whole hell of a lot by watching him um, every time you come back and have to hold his cup while he's not ready to take it yet. <laughs> you know, there, there's you, you just have to be kind of a sponge like that. You've got to be willing to learn from people and, um, you know, and there, there's no, there's no wrong way to do it. Um, you know, you just got to be there. Yeah. And there's probably some parallels uh, in the comic book world, because a lot of times um, as the writer, you're almost like the, the project manager of, of, the, of the, the book, certainly in the sort of the indie spheres where you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of it is uh, in the indie scene, it's, you know, you're the one sort of putting the team together and then sort of communicating the pieces, you know. Uh, it's gonna, uh, I don't know how many members of your creative team you have, but you could have, you know, a penciler, an inker, a colorist, a letterer. So you're sort of negotiating all of those things um, and, and seeing things, this, all the steps of the, of the way. So do you, who, who do you think the writer is most like? Is he most like the director or is he sort of more like a, uh, uh, I don't know what the equivalent in movies. Uh, I, 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 I feel like a lot of times the producers are just sort of like the, the money men. They're not really on scene. Like in you got to do that too. Okay. <laughs> um, on, I think, you know, when you're, um, you know, now I have zero experience doing um, scripts for hire in the comic book industry. You know, I've, I've never gone down that path. So I can only speak uh, from the perspective of being a, um, you know, uh, doing a creator owned project. And, um, so with cult of Dracula, I, I found that I was doing the work of a producer, of a director, um, of an, um, um, an artistic director, um, and, um, of the, um, director of cinematography, uh, and then also doing the work of uh, being a writer and an editor mm-hmm. and doing a lot of human resources as well, uh, you know, <laughs> because you've got to negotiate, um, you know, uh, fees with all these different creatives. And, uh, you know, of course, in the beginning, you know, when I started doing this, I was I was less than nobody. 
I was just some crazy dude with an idea that was talking to people I had no business having conversations with. And I was very surprised when a lot of these artists were willing to actually just not only just hear me, but also sit down and have conversations with me, you know, because very early on, you know, I'm having conversations with George's Genty, um, who's become a very good personal friend of mine. And, uh, you know, he's giving me advice. And then, um, of course, um, I did have a little bit of an in with um, the late, great Tom Lyle. Um, folks probably recognize his name from his work on Spider-Man and Batman. Um, but I worked with him on um, one of his early, actually, I think his very first film that he ever um, wrote and directed. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having all these conversations with people that I had no business being in the same room with because, you know, they, they've worked for Marvel, they've worked for DC, they've worked for Image. And, you know, here I am, I'm just nobody. Um, but, you know, I found that you, when you're, when you have a project, when it's your project, it's your IP, you're going to have to do all of this work for yourself because publishers aren't going to offer you much support or, um, or many resources uh, in the beginning, especially, um, you know, because there are hundreds of thousands of people out there with ideas. There are tens of thousands of people out there with ideas and outlines. And then there are dozens of people out there with ideas, outlines, and actual scripts. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the publishers, you know, the world of comic books, it's a razor thin profit margin, especially in the world of small press comics. Um, you know, it, it, profit margins are very small. Budgets are very small. Um, you know, a lot of times the publisher, you know, even, even there, they've got people wearing three or four hats and doing multiple jobs at once. So it's not that they wouldn't love to give you the support and the resources that you need. It's just, they don't have the, that support or those resources to spare, um, on somebody who hasn't proven anything. So it really is kind of a field of dreams type thing. You know, you've got to build it before they'll come. And, um, you know, so in creating Cult of Dracula, you know, I had to go out and I had to not only um, not only outline the project, but I also had to write the project and finish the scripts. And then I had to go hire an artist, um, you know, and I was very lucky to connect with Henry Martinez. Um, people might recognize him from his work on Ghost Rider and Blaze, Spirits of Vengeance uh, for Marvel. Um, but you know, he's, uh, he did pencils and inks for cult of Dracula. And, um, so, you know, I had to hire him, pay him out of pocket, um, because, you know, he's of course not going to work for free. Mm -hmm. Um, and then from there we had to find the colorist, uh, which we were very lucky to connect with Trevor Richardson. Um, he did some work for Fangoria magazine and he has done absolute brilliant work on cult of Dracula. His colors have elevated the, uh, um, the book. Uh, to levels I really couldn't imagine. And then we connected with uh, Ed, uh, Ed Dukesher to do letters um, for the first issue. And, um, you know, but I had to find those people. I had to hire those people. I had to pay those people. And we had to produce something before a publisher would even, you know, really look at me. Mm -hmm. And then once you have something to bring them, then you got to sell it. And, uh, you know, so it, it is not easy 
to produce your first book. But if you've got the work, work ethic and you've got the risk tolerance, anybody out there listening who wants to do this can do this, but it's not easy. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. Um, so I want to dive into Cult of Dracula, but I, I want to ask you a question about uh, the differences between writing a play, mm-hmm. writing a, 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 you know, a, a screenplay and, and writing a comic. Uh, I, there's probably things that are common of all three, and there's probably things that you can do in one that you can't do in, in the other two. So I guess maybe let's start. Is there any sort of like common theme before or a common sort of thing that you can do uh, with the three? Yeah, yeah. The the basic structure, and I want to pr- begin this by saying there is no set right or wrong way to write your script. You know, you don't have to copy me. I didn't have to copy Kelly Sue DeConnick, and she didn't have to copy Stan Lee. You know, everybody writes a little bit differently, but there are also some common threads and some common mechanisms. Um, you know, I find that in all three worlds, in theater and in film and in uh, comic writing, um, everything starts with a good outline. Um, you know, that, that outline is that little short story, you know, just bullet points of A to B to C to D to E to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is a common thread that, that goes through all of them. And if you begin a project with a solid outline, you're probably going to have at least a finished product, if not a successful finished product. And if you don't begin with a good outline, if your outline is flawed, or if you can't fill in the blanks that you need in your outline, you're probably never going to finish that script idea. So the outline being the basic foundational principle, um, in my experience, uh, that definitely carries through with whatever you're writing. Um, after that, um, there's really not a whole lot of similarities between writing for the stage and writing for, um, film or, um, comic books. Um, you know, the stage is kind of a completely different animal, um, you know, because your act structure is different. Um, you know, you're also, you're writing things like scene changes and you're writing, you know, exits and entrances and things like that that just don't exist in um um in the worlds of comic books or in um uh in screenwriting and in the theater you find that the way that you write um you tell more than you can show Mm -hmm. um you know that's not to say that you want to have an overly expository script you know, exposition will kill, it'll kill a stage play, it'll kill a screenplay, it will kill a comic book. People don't want mountains and mountains and mountains of exposition, but you can't do certain things on stage that you can do in film or that you can do in a comic book. So you have to tell a lot of times about the action more on stage than you do in a uh, so uh, I guess theater can be a bit more dialogue heavy whereas um, a screenplay and a comic book script are going to rely more heavily on the pictures that you're able to create writing a comic book script and writing a screenplay are remarkably similar Um, and if um, I mean they're they're very very similar 
um, you know, because you're essentially in both of those worlds, you're writing in pictures. You know, mm-hmm. and when you're writing a screenplay, you are uh, writing for your director of photography um, and you're describing what he's going to see or she is going to see through the camera lens. And then when you're writing for a comic book, you're writing in those same pictures, but you're writing what your artist is going to see in her mind when she lays out that, um, that panel outline for a page. So screenwriting and uh, comic book writing are very, very similar in my experience. Yeah. And I guess, you know, something that's also very similar is there's, you know, at a certain point in the production of the movie, uh, you, you may do storyboards, which would be very close to, mm-hmm. um, to, to a comic book page. Oh, it's, it's very similar. Um, a storyboard, um, when you're writing storyboards, they are generally going to be more of a bland layout. You know, they're just going to be sequential squares, um, you know, laid out, uh, you know, one right after another. Whereas laying out a comic book, um, you know, the panel layouts can get much, much more creative. And I'll be the first to admit that I am total trash when it comes to layouts, um, you know, in my first draft of, um, of Cult of Dracula issue one, um, you know, I found that essentially I had written a decent um, description to make a good, a decent storyboard. Um, I made a terrible effort at laying out a comic and thankfully Henry was able mm-hmm. to step in and fix that um, and do a much more, uh, creative um, panel arrangement. And I still rely very, very heavily on Henry to, um, you know, kind of create the layouts, but I've gotten more confident and more experienced, you know, as I've worked with him and as we've developed issue after issue, um, you know, so my layouts, I hope have gotten better, but really it, it's Henry that makes the layouts work. Nice. And I think one thing that's interesting about uh, telling a story in a comic book versus telling a story in 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 movie in a movie is as a viewer we all experience that scene or that moment uh, in the same time. Like if it's thirty seconds of a movie, it's thirty seconds for for everybody viewing it. Uh-huh. But you can you can do things with uh, the design of a, a comic book page to sort of slow the reader down or to, or to, to, to speed them up. And every reader is going to be different. Um, you know, somebody might really be captivated by a panel and they'll slow down and really take that in. So uh-huh. you can control pacing in a comic book differently than you can control pacing in a movie. Cause it's like I said, it's like 30 seconds of that movie is 30 seconds for everybody. But the, right. the way we all read a comic book um, can be different. And, you know, you can, you can, you can have a big panel with a lot of, uh, you know, background to it with, that slows us down. And then a small panel with not a lot of background that we read really quick and then we, we keep moving. So um, mm-hmm. was that something that you, you, that you had to sort of, try to try to learn yeah absolutely you know um, and you're absolutely spot on the comic book reading experience is very um personalized you know it is um something that um you know each reader can determine at his or her own pace um you know and the film the uh the filmmaker and the cinematographer have much more control 
over over that pacing. Um, so yeah, and uh, you know, you had to. Um, I had to learn um, as I was learning to lay out the script. You know, when I want to really try to control the pacing. Um, you know, so there there are times when you can see um, just and it, it's little subtle things. It's it, it's how you lay the panel out. It's where you place the the word balloon on the page um also another quick side lesson i learned you cannot skimp on your letterer um my thinking and i'm i can't tell you how wrong i was with this in the beginning i was thinking it's just letters everybody knows how to type anybody with a word processor can be a letterer I was miserably, miserably wrong about mm -hmm. that. Um, having a good letterer can make or break your comic. And, um, you know, uh, maybe someday I'll release the, uh, the, you know, the early draft of Cult of Dracula before we used Ed Dukesher um, as our letterer so that people can see the difference. You know, because we, um, our, our first um, letterer, actually it was a lettering team. It was um, Aaron Hines and Elizabeth Kidder. Um, they were graduates of SCAD. I remember you mentioned SCAD earlier, and they're brilliant, brilliantly talented people. They're wonderful people to work with, but they'd never done lettering before. And so some of the mistakes that they made, um, they were just mistakes that they didn't know any better that, you know, someone who's been working in the industry for 10, 15, 20 years, they know this stuff by heart. And, um, but, you know, they did the best they could. But when we finally hired Ed to do the, you know, to kind of revamp the lettering, mm -hmm. um, it really, really elevated the book. So, you know, don't, don't think that you can skimp on, um, on lettering. There's really no place that you can skimp when you're creating a comic. You've, you've, my best advice is to work with the highest level of professional on every level that you can afford. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, that doesn't mean that you've got to go out and, you know, hire Bill Sienkiewicz to do your, your pencils or your book's going to fail. Um, you know, I'm not saying that at all, um, you know, cause you're probably not be able to be able to afford him cause he's brilliant. Um, but hire the hire a professional and hire the best professional that you can afford to do every job on your comic. And then that way you are presenting a professional product created by the best possible professionals when you're taking it to your publisher. Yeah, that's that's wonderful advice. And and going back to the letterer or you know just lettering in general, it's sort of the uh, the unsung uh, heroes of comics because it's like it's like a it's like a referee in a, at a sport a sporting game. Like you don't uh, you don't notice them unless they mess up. Like uh, exactly. <laughs> so the only time you notice the lettering is is wrong or the lettering. Is, is when it's sort of like in a bad place or it's, you know, the, it, it just sort of doesn't allow the eye to flow. If it's, right. if they're doing their job or if they're experienced enough that they're, they're able to do their job, it's just sort of something that, that you don't notice. And you only notice it when it's, when it's uh, done, you know, not so great or done improperly. So yep. I would agree with you there. Um, so let's let's <clears throat> let's go into uh, Cult of Dracula. You had said that uh, your parents gave you comics, and that sort of ignited your your love of reading, and then you became mm -hmm. a voracious reader. I'm gonna have to guess that uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula was was something that that you read at a young age that really really spoke to you. Wait, somebody wrote Dracula before me. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> yes. Um, I, uh, I read um, Stoker's Dracula for the first time. I think I was 12. Um, and it fascinated me. Um, I could not wrap my brain around how amazing it was to read this incredible story told almost entirely through um, letters, uh, you know, because it's the story in Dracula is told a lot of the times by people writing letters to each other about what happened or diary entries. And that was just fascinating to me as a kid. And of course, I watched the film um, Coppola's version of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula and, you know, was, you know, mystified by it. Um, I, I've now, I think I've probably seen every version of Dracula that's been made. Um, there's probably something out there I haven't seen. And so if somebody listening, uh, has some really random obscure Dracula film or something that they, they recommend, uh, I'll go check it out because I love the character. I've always been obsessed with vampires. Um, I was reading Anne Rice um, when I was way too young to be reading Anne mm -hmm. Rice. Uh, my parents really didn't know what they were getting into when they turned me into a voracious reader. Uh, but, you know, the, the darker things, I read Stephen King, um, you know, I read The Stand. I think I was probably 11 or 12 the first time I read The Stand. Didn't understand 80% of what I was reading, but I knew I loved it, mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, of course, Salem's Lot. Um, is, uh, you know, one of the seminal books um, for me growing up. I, I've read it multiple times uh, and it, it, it scares me every single time. Um, it's just so brilliantly written. Um, so, uh, but yes, uh, I, Stoker's Dracula was one of the, uh, one of the early books and, a, you know, obviously a very strong influence in, um, uh, you know, my adaptation of Cult of Dracula. So, how long had this sort of idea of doing this adaptation? Um, you know, you, you're doing some stuff with, uh, you know, detectives and, 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 and news reporters. Like how, how long have you sort of been building this, this story up in, in your mind? You know, it's crazy to say, but it's almost been 10 years, um, almost an entire decade on one currently six issue comic it's it's actually going to be 18 total issues um source point press uh recently exercised their option to pick up volumes two and volumes three nice. um but yeah i've been marinating on this one idea for almost a decade um it began as a stage play um, we produced it at the Browncoat theater in wilmington north carolina um in 2012 um, uh, excuse me, 2013. Um, and, uh, it was very successful. Um, it won multiple awards, uh, and, uh, sold out an entire month's worth of productions. So very successful stage play. Um, Tony Todd, um, the candy man, um, happened to be in town filming, um, or for some reason he was in Wilmington and he happened to see it. And, uh, he and I, uh, became friends afterward and Tony um, encouraged me to develop this into a screenplay. Um, and so that was my intended path after the stage production was to turn it into a screenplay and to develop it into a 90-minute uh, a horror film. And uh, the character of Brom, uh, Agent Brom, actually was created for uh, with the intention that Tony would play him. 
Um, and we may be able to circle back to that. Um, you know, there's a film project already in development with Sure Pictures. Uh, they do a lot of work with Netflix and the History Channel, AMC, things like that. Um, but, you know, it's quite a ways down the road uh, before we get there. Um, but um, so, yeah, I went from a stage play to a screenplay uh, and then uh, ultimately ended up uh, introducing itself to the world as a, as a pretty decent comic book. Awesome. So with it being a sort of a 10 year sort of uh, thing that you have been working on, uh, was that was that prior to to the stage play, uh, you know, 10 years of sort of development, developing it or the idea and sort of working it through? Or was it the, the 10 years sort of the, the you know, the stage play, the the the, poss- the screenplay possibilities and stuff like that? Yeah, it's it's ten years in total. Um, you know, I started working on it in um, for the stage um, in late 2011, early 2012, um, and um, actually, I was coming back from Dragon Con. Um, started thinking about things. Um, I wanted to I wanted to write a new stage play, and then I ended up having a lunch with a dear friend of mine named Rob Mann, who happened to be directing um, a stage play um, adaptation of Dracula for a, another theater company. And he was uh, lamenting that he hated the script. And uh, he's, you know, he had a brilliant cast, had a gorgeous set. Um, you know, everything about the production was awesome, but he hated his script. And he said, you know what, there's just no such thing as a good Dracula sta- uh, stage play. There's no such thing as a good Dracula script. And so I, at lunch, I kind of joked with him. I said, you know what, I'm going to write one. <laughs> and, um, you know, Rob, knowing me being who I am, when I set my mind to something, he knew I was going to do it. And so, you know, it took me about a year to get a script together that I was satisfied with. And, um, even all these years later, I have to I have to admit that Rob was right. Um, it is very difficult uh, to write a good Dracula stage play, and I I still cannot say that my stage play adaptation of Dr- of Dracula was quote unquote good. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> it was it was serviceable. It was a good production, but I go back and I look at the I look at the the script. And I see a lot of the problems with it. And, um, you know, it's very difficult to adapt Dracula to a modern stage. Um, I think it works much, much better on film. And I think it works fantastically well um, in comic book form. But it's very, very difficult to do it well on the stage. Okay. So you, you had mentioned earlier in the interview that you're, you're, you're you know, you're very much uh, somebody who knows the importance of an outline and you sort of have that dedication to to show up and sit down in front of the computer but for any creative there's always that moment when you're either walking mowing the grass or you're you're in the shower where like something comes to you to sort of uh bring a story element together or break a story element so so how do you handle those sort of uh moment of inspiration when you're you're not necessarily sitting down and, and really thinking about it, but the back of your mind is still sort of processing that story. And then it sort of comes to, it comes to the forefront of your mind and you're like, oh, that's what I need to do there. Or if I do this, this ties these two things together. How do you handle those sort of moments? This is, um, for, and that happens to everyone. It happens to me frequently. It usually happens to me either when I'm in the shower or when I'm driving. Um, 
ideas for whatever reason hit me in those two places. If I'm in the shower, it's very easy to jump out, grab my phone and type myself a note in uh, Google keep, you mm -hmm. know, I can just, you know, really quickly just hammer that out. If you're driving, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, so when those, um, when those ideas hit me like that, um, I get to rely on a little bit of my um, actor training um, from my time uh, in school as a, um, uh, getting a, a theater degree, um, you know, there are, you, you're taught in, um, in theater when you're an actor creating a character uh, to associate certain moments, certain emotions uh, with, um, um, with either memories, experiences. Um, and one of the ways I learned to do that was uh, through music. And so I can associate certain things triggers for me music is a very strong trigger for me um so if i have an idea in my head and i'm not in a place where i can easily um or safely write that idea down what i try to do is i try to attach that idea in my head to a song that I'm hearing on uh, the radio or on my playlist, or if I don't, if I don't have the radio going, I try to think of a song that I can associate this idea with. And it's just a trick in my, in my brain, you know, through training as an actor uh, to be able to recall what I was thinking, what I was feeling at that given moment by using the, the, the musical trigger. Um, so I guess if, if someone was looking for advice in that, find a trigger, um, find something that you can associate, um, your idea with so that it will help you remember it. And if you train yourself over a long period of time to do that, um, you know, it'll become easier and easier. Um, but, um, if, and if you're looking for, you know, the, the training, uh, start with Uta Hagen's, um, uh, books, um, on acting, um, or, um, I'm also a fan of Sanford Meisner, um, and both of them cover different, um, substitution techniques and different memory techniques, uh, that help you as an actor to link to those different times in your life. And like I said, it has helped me as a writer to be able to remember those things that I would probably otherwise forget. Mm -hmm. That's, that's pretty cool. I don't know if I've ever, I've never heard of, of those, the, the, the way to sort of associate something else to sort of keep, uh, to keep that thought in, in your mind. So that's, that's, that's pretty interesting tip. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we've, we, on some of the other interviews, we, we've, we've joked that maybe, uh, we all need to create sort of a, uh, a dry erase board for the shower that uh, doesn't, <laughs> right. where, the, where the ink doesn't, where the, the, the you know, the marker doesn't rub, uh, you know, the water doesn't affect it. So we can all sort of jot down those notes uh, while, while we're there. I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement with that. And <laughs> all I can say now is I'm so glad that every phone I've owned for the last five years has been waterproof. Uh, because I can't tell you the number of times that I have jumped out of the shower soaking wet shampoo running down into my face and grabbed my phone and typed, you know, an entire, you know, scene, you know, re standing right there in my bathroom. Um, and you guys can attach whatever imagery to that that you want. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm so glad my phone is waterproof because otherwise I would, that would become a very expensive habit.
Very true. <laughs> so I, I'm looking at the the solicit and previews. And again, we talked about how you, you brought a number of different uh, sort of uh, modern things into this story. You know, we, we, we have a special agent, uh, we have a cult, we have we have a film crew. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the, the story element and why you chose like a, a special agent and, 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 and a film crew here? Nah, we'll just, we'll skip all that. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, um, all right. So Bram Stoker's original Dracula is primarily, um, told, uh, through, uh, it, it's, it's told from multiple points of view and, um, primarily told by people observing what's happening. Um, it's told through diary entries. And so I was trying to think of an interesting framing device that um, would kind of mimic that or at least pay homage to it. And um, so the idea of my, my initial idea was to do it um, kind of as a found footage thing, um, you know, because if you look when you're introduced to Jonathan and Mina and uh, Van Helsing in the first issue, uh, they are they're at the, um, the House of the Rising Sun, which is the cult compound. They're there under the guise of being or under the premise of being a documentary film crew. Um, so my initial idea for the screenplay was to have it be a kind of a found footage type film and everything that we see would be told either through Jonathan's camera lens or through security cameras or maybe cell phone cameras. Um, so that would be the way the story would unfold. But it became um, a lot more interesting to me um, to make that homage be through um, a detective's case files. Um, he, these are the things that he's investigating. Uh, these are the things he's uncovering. This is the evidence that he's finding, and now we're seeing the story behind it. And also, I like detective stories, and also, to be perfectly honest, I was looking for a way to get Tony Todd involved with the screenplay um, the old, the film production. And so I had to write an entirely new character for him. And, um, it was just natural to write Tony as a, as a, an FBI special agent. So, um, that's really how that device came into play. But the, the story, uh, in cult of Dracula, it's told, uh, in a broken narrative format. Um, we shift between, points of view and perspectives and timelines very, very fluidly. Um, so in order to do that properly, we needed a framing device to anchor us to real time. So whenever you're following Agent Brahms' story, it's real time. This mm -hmm. is now. Everything else, you know, in you know, we introduce it in the the first issue. You know, we jump back, you know, when you're, when you meet Van Helsing, Mina and Jonathan, you're jumping back three days before, um, agent Brom arrived. And then toward the end, we slip back about, uh, we slip back about 15 years to Mina's childhood briefly as the, um, as the story unfolds, as we go into issues two, three, four, five, and six, the timelines, they get a lot more fluid. They get a lot more confusing, you know, page by page, sometimes panel by panel, 
we may be at three different time periods at once. And my goal with that is to create a sense of disorientation and confusion with the reader, you know, so that they'll feel the, the deeper into this story they get, the further down the rabbit hole they get, and the more I want them to get into the minds of the characters and experience the things the way they're experiencing them. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of purpose to making things uh, you know, toying with the timelines and playing with that broken narrative a bit. Um, and that, that is a fun way of storytelling for me. I always enjoyed uh, Quentin Tarantino's films, uh, Pulp Fiction being one of my favorites. And I loved the broken narrative format and just that shifting timelines and never really knowing where or when you are. And I think it plays pretty well in Cult of Dracula. Awesome. So, um, that's I, I really appreciate you breaking that down for us and, and explaining how you were able to sort of use uh, a detective as a framing sequence. You have the film crew, which is sort of allowing him to sort of piece things together and, and moving you around. Um, but you had said earlier that, uh, you know, you were spending some of your time, you know, calling shops and telling them about, uh, this book. So this book is mm -hmm. currently in previews. So it's January of 2021 right now. Mm -hmm. And the book is, uh, going to be in shops, uh, at the end of March, March 31st, yeah, March 31st. So, uh, you're doing a lot of of that work, but also what's important for folks that that see this, uh, you know, either this book in previews or see some art somewhere, listen to a podcast with you on what what's really important for them as well is to go to their shop owner um, and say, hey, I want this book um, so that the the pre order system can 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 be done because a lot of times these shops, if it doesn't have a picture of Batman or a picture of Spider-Man on it, they're, they're not going to order copies. But if they sort of have a customer that they know wants it, they'll, they'll, take, a, they'll take a chance. And, and maybe if they get two or three customers, uh, they might say, hey, you know, I got a little bit of interest in this book. So let me bump it up by, you know, X number of copies so I can, I, I can put a couple more copies on the stands. So why don't you, you speak to the, to the importance of, of pre-orders for, for an indie creator, a smaller publisher? Absolutely. Pre-orders are vital to the success of any comic book, but they are even more vital to the success of an independent comic. Um, you know, a small press book, um, a lot of times the publishers don't get, um, Diamond doesn't even allow them to do FOC, which is final order cutoff. Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of folks that don't know, uh, generally the way comics are ordered 60 days prior to release is called the initial order cutoff. That's where shops have to get their initial orders in. Then generally after that, they have anywhere from two weeks to 30 days of what's called FOC, final order cutoff, where you can make adjustments to print runs. Now, Marvel and DC, Image, the big boys, they can do that all day long. Um, small publishers, uh, like my publisher, um, SourcePoint Press, um, unfortunately, they're not even allowed to do that with Diamond sometimes. And even if they could, they may not be able to afford it because, um, you know, when you're not ordering, you know, 
50, 60,000 copies of a book, or if you're not, you know, placing millions of dollars of orders with your print house, um, you know, you don't get the flexibility to make those changes without paying uh, through the nose for them. So, you know, it is very important for people to pre-order books and to do so through your local comic book shops. Local comic book shops are the backbone, the heart, and the life's blood of the comic book industry. Um, without local comic book shops, this industry would have been gone a long, long time ago. Um, and so it's very important if you're listening, build a relationship with your local shop, tell them what you want, um, because you're absolutely correct. Um, if it's not Batman or if it's not Spider-Man, I mean, Batman and Spider-Man, they're going to sell anywhere in the world. You know, every shop is going to order 50 copies of, of those books, you know, because they're going to sell. Um, it's a lot more difficult for a shop owner to take a gamble on a book that they've never heard of from a creator they don't know. Um, it, it's more, more difficult. So if they don't place the orders, then the publishers don't order enough from the print house. And then there's not enough of these books on the market, which is why you see a lot of times, um, you know, these indie small press books, the first prints are, you know, the only way to get them is to pop on eBay and pay, you know, 20, 30, $40 per cover, um, you know, per issue for them. And um, that's just simply because people didn't order enough of them so the you know the publisher didn't have enough of them printed mm -hmm. so yes please go and pre-order the book now we're very um we're very fortunate with source point source point um has embraced cult of dracula they believe in cult of dracula they believe cult of dracula is going to be one of their biggest releases of 2021 if not one of their biggest releases of all time um, we have engaged in a very aggressive marketing campaign. Um, a lot of that I've had to do that work myself, but that's what I do. Um, you know, I told, um, I think, uh, one of the reasons why, uh, Jacob and Travis at SourcePoint uh, chose to take a gamble on me is because I told them in the beginning, I said, look, you're not only getting my book. You're not just getting Cult of Dracula, which I believe is an, is an incredible book and is going to have strong sales for you. You're also getting me and I'm going to make sure that it gets strong sales for you. And so I made a promise to them when, um, when they chose to take my book on um, that I was going to get them sales. And I have devoted, you know, I have devoted, 40, 50, 60 hours a week for several months to ensuring that I deliver on that promise. And, you know, we're marketing, we're, we're calling comic book stores, we're building relationships with, uh, with comic book store owners. Uh, we're working with some of the best comic book artists in the business. I mean, Shannon Mayer um, has done a gorgeous uh, B cover alternate for, uh, for Cult of Dracula that is selling insanely well. Gula Nemeth um, is doing the A covers, um, but we're working with uh, Lucio Perillo and Carla Cohen and Alex Rigel um, and Sanford Green, uh, Gabriel Delato. Um, you know, they're, they're creating uh, retailer exclusive covers for the book. Um, so, you know, before Cult of Dracula even hit previews, I had already guaranteed that SourcePoint was uh, financially successful for agreeing to pick up the book just based on the retailer exclusives that we sold. But now um, we're, thanks to that buzz that we've generated with those retailer exclusives, we're now starting to see those returns um, in, um, in previews. 
And, um, you know, I've got my, my fingers crossed that hopefully we can, uh, we can break the top 100, um, with our first issue in March. Um, but that's gonna, you know, that's gonna require a lot of folks going out there and, um, and asking their local comic book shop to order Cult of Dracula. But I, I really think, um, with the marketing and the effort we've put behind it with the film project and development from sure pictures. And hopefully before the book hits shelves, we're going to have a big announcement about that. Uh, we're getting close to being able to announce something big. Um, and, uh, but I really, I, I really, really hope that we're going to build, continue to build the momentum. And uh, I really want to break the top 100 with, uh, with my first book. Very cool. You you brought up a, a lot of great points, and I think one of the the prime examples of, uh, you know, if you if you don't have that pre order in, you might be turning to to eBay. Is uh, I've had Frank Gogol on a, a couple of times, and those yep. Dead End Kin books, you know, uh, the the buzz was so. Um, great around those at the release date that they, that you know you you might have gone into your shop uh and they they were they were already gone by that point and, and you oh, had yeah. no you had no chance so that's uh, that's another reason and you 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 know you said you know if you miss out then it's the it's the the third party sellers on the internet uh jack prices so and you know and those guys they uh, you know they're an essential part of the comic book hobby as well you know being able the collectors and the speculators mm -hmm. and you know there's nothing wrong with what they do but i understand why people who just want to read the book get angry but really when it comes down to it if you didn't pre-order it if you didn't subscribe to it and you knew about it now if you didn't know about it that's that's our fault but if you knew about it and you didn't pre-order it and you didn't get it then it's your fault you know you missed out because you didn't follow through and you know everybody in the hobby has to take a little bit of responsibility for doing their part if they want something to be successful and if they want to read something now if you see the solicit and you don't care and you don't want it that's fine too you know not every book is for everybody but there is a book for everybody out there and um but, you know, speculators and eBay sellers, you know, they've got a job to do and they deserve to make money as well. But it does kind of suck for the people who just want to read it, who can't get a copy. And trust me, SourcePoint Press would love to be able to print 10 million copies of Cult of Dracula so that everybody who might ever even think about wanting to buy a copy would be able to get one at cover price. But unfortunately, they can't invest that kind of money and their orders are going to be based on how many people go to the comic book store and ask their retailer to order it so that these retailers put their pre-orders in through diamond before um, the end of January. Um, and, you know, after that, you know, there's already a lot of buzz. We're, we're very confident that I, and actually, you know, you bring it up by Frank Gogol, um, his success with dead end kids, the suburban job and uh, no heroin. Um, that's a model that I would love to mimic. If I could get anywhere close to how successful he was with no heroin, then, you know, I, I will consider this a, a big win um, because those are amazing books from an incredible creator and they had awesome financial success. Um, but, uh, but yeah, as you know, those books, they, they were gone on store shelves before they ever released because retailers only order a lot of times only ordered enough to fill their subscriptions and they didn't order any shelf copies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the books went to the people who pre-ordered them and then those, some of those people flipped them on eBay. Um, you know, it, it's just the ecosystem that we live in and, you know, 
you can't you can't hate frank or you can't hate somebody for selling it it's just it's just the game it's just the rules uh as they're written of the game that we all play um but if you want cult of dracula and i know a lot of you are going to want to I, I really hope that you do um because i i really believe in this book um and i'm i'm I've got a big debt to pay to source point for giving me the chance to get it out there. So I'm going to implore you, please go to your local comic book store and ask them to order cult of Dracula from source point press. We've got two covers. Um, they're both gorgeous. Um, the a and the B from Gula Nimeth and Shannon Mayer respectively. Um, and I, I really think you're going to dig it. Awesome. So I have uh, one last question before I'm going to give you a chance to, uh, to pitch the book on the way out. Uh, how did you how did you hook up with Swords Point Press? I know, uh, you know, 2020, we weren't able to go to cons. Uh, were you able to, to go to a con and hand a copy of them prior to COVID or, or how did nope. that go? No, um, you know, I people have said this as a joke, but I fully embrace it. I would have been perfectly happy living in the time of P.T. Barnum, and I probably would have worked for him uh, because I. I have that natural personality where I can be a carnival barker and I love to talk to people and I love to sell people things. I love to build hype and excitement about things. And, um, you know, so I spent, um, I spent a good year, 2019, um, uh, well, 2018 and 2019, really, I spent a lot of time pitching this project to different publishers, um, Aftershock, Scout, um, Top Cow, uh, 12 Gauge, um, a lot of different publishers and, um, just kind of beating the streets and, you know, um, you know, going and talking to people again, that I had no business talking to. And, um, you know, ultimately, um, we got to, we got to source point in kind of an indirect way. Um, we had, um, the book had been, um, issue one had been published by another small publisher, Things didn't work out um, financially with them, unfortunately, um, have no ill will toward them. Things just didn't work. So I ended up finding a way, um, needing to find a new home. And so I started reaching out to some older contacts that I had, some people who had had interest in the book before and, um, you know, got got back into that uh, that that path where you're getting rejection after rejection after rejection, or they're saying, well, maybe 2022, maybe 2023, you know, a lot of things are happening. And ultimately um, my, uh, my friends over at vault comics um, connected me with, um, with red five comics who ultimately then connected me to source point. And luckily source point um, was, had, heard about the project and heard about what I had been doing to sell it and to market it. And they gave me the chance. So I'm very, very grateful to that. Um, you know, Jacob and Travis both told me from the beginning that source point was like a family and that they supported each other and that they would put everything they could behind my book. And they have done nothing but prove that every single day, um, that I've worked with them. And so I am very happy and very proud to be doing what I can do to um, do my part and reward them for the faith they put into me. Awesome. Well, Rich, I had a, a really great time talking uh, yeah, you man, know, me too. story process uh, and, and the book. Um, let's do uh, one last pitch uh, for the book and let folks know um, 
where they can find you online. I'm going to put a link to, to the previews page, uh, to the source point page in, in the show notes for this, but anything personally you want to give out and just sort of, again, the, the uh, one last elevator pitch for the book. Absolutely. Cult of Dracula is Bram Stoker's original tale reimagined inside of a Charles Manson inspired cult. It's witchy, it's weird, it's helter skelter in a hippie cult sworn to an ancient blood goddess. You may know Stoker's classic by heart, but I promise you have no idea where Cult of Dracula is going to take you. That's the elevator pitch. I've had to Very do that cool. so many times. <laughs> it's like it's memory now, but I love it. It's actually pretty well. I, I like it. Um, but yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun book. It's um, it's a, it, it's something that I wanted to write that horror fans would be proud of and that I would be proud of as a horror fan. So I think it delivers. Um, it's coming out uh, on March 31st from source point press it's available in Previews Magazine right now, so please go ask your local comic book shop uh, to order you a copy of Cult of Dracula from SourcePoint Press. Um, again, we have two covers, one by Gula Nimeth, the other by Shannon Mayer. Uh, and um, if you would like, you can follow us on Facebook um, at Cult of Dracula Comic. We're also on Instagram at Cult Comic and uh, Twitter at Cult Comic. Um, so you can follow us on those. The Facebook page is actually really fun. We post a lot of behind the scenes stuff. You get to see art before it gets released. And we've got a really cool community on there. You know, we talk to each other and, um, you know, if you want to reach me, if you want to talk to me, I don't know why you would, but if you do, um, you know, the, the Facebook page is the best way to do it, uh, because I read every comment. I read every post that anybody puts on there and I always, uh, always respond. So, um, if you want to do that, um, again, it's at cult of Dracula comic, um, on Facebook and, um, yeah, we would love to have you following us and love to talk to you. Awesome. Well, like I said, we're going to have the link to the preview page, SourcePoint's webpage, and we're going to put links to, to that social media in the, in the show notes uh, for that. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm really excited for this book. I got to read the, the, the first issue. Um, uh, maybe uh, in the future, after a couple of uh, issues, or maybe after issue six, sort of that first volume wraps up, maybe we can check in with you again to see how, how things are going. Absolutely. I would love to come back anytime you'll have me. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again for, for being on. Uh, I, I really had a great time talking with you. Uh, for anybody listening, if you could give the podcast a rating and review on the podcasting service you use, we'd really appreciate it. If you want to follow the podcast, we're on Twitter at Construct Compod. Instagram is Constructing Comics Pod. Facebook is Constructing Comics. Um, also, uh, since we're talking about previews, if you want to check out Paranormal Hitman, um, issue two recently went into previews, um, and I have a short story in the back of that called uh, Ghost at the Gate. Um, nice. you, you, you can order that, and we're currently working on a, a short story for, for issue three, which is going to be called Great Caesar's Ghost. Um, so I'll put links for that in the, in the show notes as, as well. Um, that's another indie comic which would, you know, benefit from, from pre-orders and telling your shops that, uh, that, uh, that you want to copy. Um, but I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to encourage everybody to be safe, be nice to each other, and go out there and make some comics. Thank you. <laughs>